Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where we talk about all that stuff that makes or breaks us as parents. A lot of what we do here is we talk about pregnancy because, well, that's the gateway, right? That's the entry door to parenting, where it all starts, sort of. We've talked before about how women bring history, their whole selves, their histories, their habits, their families, their culture, their relationships, their occupations, their, you know, everything. They bring everything with them as they become mothers. They don't leave it all behind and put on a new identity. Mom. No, the woman we are before we become a mom is the woman we are during motherhood, only with a lot more responsibility and complications in life. So we talk about that stuff on the podcast. We also talk about prenatal care. We answer questions. We connect the dots with, you know, the everyday politics that's going on that many people fail to connect with their parenthood. So why me? Why is this my thing? Well, um, talking about pregnancy, parenting, and politics, well, because I am a woman of a certain age who has been present at tens of thousands of births, and I want to see gender equity, feminism, and women's empowerment move light years beyond where we are now and where we've been. And I believe a lot of that is connected to birth. Now, as y'all know, I was a labor and labor delivery nurse for 20 years, and I've been working in global maternal health for the better part of the past decade. And what I've seen around the country and around the world and just about in every facet of society is this. Women are not truly considered men's equals anywhere, not even in our healthcare systems. And it's high time we change that. So that's what I have to contribute to the advancement of feminism. I can talk about birth, pregnancy, prenatal care, parenting, politics, healthcare. I can talk about that with some really interesting people and I can share it with you. And then you can share it with your people and we can all do something, right? Everybody's got their way to contribute their worth to the greater good. This is my thing. What's yours? Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about what's going on with politics this week. Now, as I said, I am a woman old enough to have worked in women's health for more than 30 years and to have raised a family of now mostly adult children. And I'm old enough to have been an adult when Anita Hill stood up against another accused sexual predator and candidate for seat on the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas. Anita Hill was a respected attorney, and she was raked over the coals with her allegations in what people now refer to as the Anita Hill treatment to exemplify just the worst that women will be treated by white men who are accused of sexual assault. So this is your homework, people. If you are not familiar with what the Senate put her through back in 1991, I want you to go on over to YouTube and plug in Anita Hill 1991 testimony, and I want you to learn. No wonder women wait to report sexual assault. This is what happens and what has happened to women throughout all time. We go through something like that, and it seems like it doesn't matter. If we report, we're raked over the coals. We're not believed. Well, ladies, that's what's happening right now to Christine Blasey Ford, who has Supreme Court nominee Brett, she's accused Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault when they were both in high school. 
Again, do some homework if you're not already up to speed on this, because people, this has the potential to impact generations of women's health laws and regulations. Brett Kavanaugh's views on women's health, women's rights, gender equity, and his own sexual behavior towards women is under direct scrutiny and is considered among the most conservative leaning judges. Now, looking at the times that we're in right now, including me too, and time's up. Do we really need one more conservative middle-aged white man sitting on the bench in the highest court in the land, making lifelong decisions about women's health, gender equity, human rights in our own country? Yeah, maybe not, especially if he was a sexual predator in high school. Now, does that mean he is one throughout his life? No, not necessarily. You know, drunk teenage boys make about the worst decisions known to humanity, but they tend to make a strong statement about that boy's core values, morality, and sense of entitlement and privilege. Don't think that this is not a case that will affect you because if the Supreme Court is stacked with conservative white men with an agenda to control our health, employment potentials, financial capabilities, and basic life and family issues, excuse me, then who is going to represent us? Me, you, the women, the families of color. Who? We're outnumbered at that point. That's why this is so important. Now, what can you do about it? Well, today, right now, as soon as you hear this, you can flood your senator's offices with phone calls, emails, postcards. Tell them to stall the vote on Kavanaugh's appointment to the Supreme Court until after the FBI does a thorough investigation. There's no need to rush this. There's no reason other than politics. And people, if we've learned nothing else over the past three decades, let's not give this nomination, this Supreme Court pick, and Ms. Blasey Ford, let's not give it the Anita Hill treatment. Women, men, parents, families all over America deserve much better than that. Okay. We've gotten a few emails a lot lately that I want to answer. So uh, what we're going to do this week is we are going to just focus on digging in, shall we? Now, um, this email is one that really speaks to the heart of so, so many women. And it comes from Melanie, who writes, Dear Jeannie, I was ecstatic to find out that I was pregnant in July. I quickly found your podcast and burnt through about 80 episodes in three weeks. I was obsessed. That is until I lost my baby just shy of eight weeks. After that, it became a little painful to listen. I just found out I'm pregnant again, but it's a lot harder to celebrate this time. I was wondering in your wealth of knowledge, if you had any advice for moms who've suffered loss. Thank you. Sincerely, Melanie. Oh my. (laughs) Hi, Melanie. Thank you so much, first of all, for reaching out. I really appreciate that. And thank you for listening so voraciously during those early weeks of your first pregnancy. Um, I totally get it why it would be hard to listen after you had your miscarriage. In fact, I think that shows a lot of good judgment and demonstrates really good self-care on your part to just, you know, put that on pause. Thank you for doing that. Now, congratulations on your second pregnancy. That's wonderful. And again, I totally get it why it would be hard to give yourself permission to celebrate 
because you're guarding your heart against, you know, grief and against the heartbreak that you experienced before, you know, in case you miscarry again. That's totally fine too. A lot of women do that. And it's it's really, really common way that women who've had miscarriages approach subsequent pregnancies, you know, with cautious celebration, with guarded hope and a bit of a raw edge where they're still grieving their miscarriage. And for you, especially sweetie, it's been real fresh. July was just a few months ago. So you've been through a lot. I think that, you know, there are any number of ways of correct and proper and right ways to approach this next pregnancy. And if you feel like, you know, you need to be cautious until you you are beyond a certain point, well then, you know what? Do that. You know what's best for you. Um, miscarriage is something that I get a lot of, of a lot of emails about. And I'd like to read a little something I wrote a long time ago for Fit Pregnancy Magazine. That's, you know, so it's more about our feelings and culture around miscarriage than specifically about second miscarriage, but I think it's still applicable and maybe it'll help a little bit. So I pulled this up out of Fit Pregnancy Archives, wrote this quite a while back. Every week, a few women email to ask if their early pregnancy spotting or discharge means that they're going to miscarry. They're terrified and looking for reassurance and a guarantee that everything will be okay with their pregnancies. I have plenty of reassurance to offer, and I wish I could offer that guarantee, but the best I can do is tell my readers that probably everything will be okay. Between 10% and 25% of all pregnancies end in miscarriage, and most happen before a woman knows she's pregnant, according to the American Pregnancy Association. They usually occur before 13 weeks, and we don't know why they happen in most cases. Best theories say it's because of some sort of genetic or developmental anomaly, hormonal problems, implantation problems, or environmental conditions that have a bad effect on the pregnancy. Is it because of something mom did, such as getting pregnant after a few drinks? Is it because she's stressed out or having negative thoughts? Almost certainly not. Think about how many starving women living in war-torn countries carry babies to full term. Most of us will never know that kind of stress. Drug addicts and alcoholics often carry babies to term, as do mentally ill women. Miscarriage is an equal opportunity tragedy, and it happens to many, many women, regardless of how well they're able to take care of themselves or not. Does spotting mean a miscarriage is on the way? Not usually. Instead, it indicates implantation or cervical irritation or simply residual discharge left over from your last period. Most of the time, it's no big deal, physically. Emotionally and mentally, however, spotting and discharge are tumultuous and strike fear into every newly pregnant mother. Can you do anything to make sure that spotting doesn't turn into a miscarriage? Probably not. Do let your doctor and midwife know and make an appointment for a consultation. They might recommend you avoid having sex until the spotting passes, but other than that, if you're still in your first trimester, there's not a lot you can do. That leaves me to the subject of grief and the tentative hold that we have on any life. I attended a book reading of Emily Rapps a while back on her then new release, The Still Point of the Turning World. 
It's a memoir of her experience raising and losing her son with Tay-Sachs disease, a fatal genetic disorder. Among the topics she discussed was how her experience awakened in her a realization that life and death walk hand in hand for everyone, but most of us don't realize it. I suspect that pregnant women understand this intimate relationship more clearly than ever before in their lives. In many countries, mothers face the deaths of their newborns and children with alarming frequency, and they understand the fragility of life better than most of us do. Here in the U.S., we live with safety nets that prevent most, but not all, tragedies. It's not until we face a crisis like some spotting, a serious illness, accident, or death that most of us really get it. Life is precious, fragile, and best lived in the moment because no one knows how long it will last. Maybe that's the lesson from miscarriage and grief. None of us know how long a life will last, whether it's the one inside of us, the one in the crib, or the obnoxious teenager down the hall. Its value isn't measured in time. It is valuable simply because it is. If you can find a way to stay present, love the child inside of you or in front of you or for however long you have them, then you've been the mother they needed. Not to end with too much sadness, let me boost the reassurance factor here. Spotting and discharge don't always mean miscarriage. The odds that you will carry your pregnancy to term are very, very good. Melanie, I'll be thinking about you and hoping you're well. Okay, let's do one more. This one comes from Takia. And actually, I'm hoping that that is the correct pronunciation of Takia's lovely name. She writes, Jeannie, I am currently a month now past my C-section. My incision is completely healed from the outside, but I am still in terrible pain, not on the site of incision, but slightly above. I feel that the pain is in the flesh, which makes it difficult to get up from bed. I am always worried that the internal stitches may pop out. What are the circumstances? Also, I would like to know if I can bend over to pick up things from the floor or sit down in a squatting position. Hi, Takia. Ouch, that sounds painful. And like it's making your normal ability to get up and down, you know, and do your thing, making it difficult. Now, by a month out past a C-section and delivery, you're you're getting close to being mostly healed, but you're not completely healed. There's a lot of tissue trauma that has to heal, a lot of muscle tissue that has to knit back together, skin that has to seal over. Um, you know, there's just and and then there's the normal ligament and muscle aches and pains that come with any pregnancy or birth. Now, I'd anticipate that you'd still be achy at a month out. But, you know, not what I describe as terrible pain and not so painful that it's hard to get out of bed. That I don't think that's quite normal. It it does sound like you're probably healing well on the outside. And most likely that area above your incision is just a little bit extra tender. But I really think that I'd like you to give your midwife or doctor a call and ask for a quick consultation. They might want you to take your temperature, describe your bleeding, what the incision looks like, and whether there's any odor, heat, drainage. You know, they're especially looking for signs of infection. And you know what? That happens sometimes. You know, it could also be that one little area of the incision is irritated by a suture and causing pain. It could be something simple like that. But whatever it is, 
I think your symptoms are worth a checkup with your doctor or midwife. Start with a phone call. Just call over there, tell them what's ex- what you're experiencing, and then see what they recommend. Now, I hope that helps. Sometimes what we need is just another set of eyes on a situation just to know whether it's normal or not, right? Let's not underrate the power of pain to tell us what our body needs us to know. It's sending us signals. And let's not underrate just how big of an operation a C-section is. You know, we normalize it, right? Because so darn many of them are going on out there. Here in the United States, at least, it's the number one operation done in the United States. We do more than a third of our births by C-section, which means a a lot more mamas are at risk for post-op infections. Now, most can be easily treated with antibiotics, but if they're not recognized and treated properly, they can cause serious illness or worse. Now, all that sounds scary. And I want to remind you, Takia, that it is normal to still have some pain at a month post-surgery, but not so much that getting out of bed is difficult and not what I describe as terrible. As for bending over and picking things up, yes, go for it if it's not too painful. Squatting should also be fine. Let your body be your guide. If it hurts, back off a little. If it feels okay, go for it, but go gently. It's only been a month, Takia. Go easy, mama. And please give your healthcare provider a call about that incisional pain. Okay, so let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor, and then we'll answer one more email with our favorite midwife, Chris Beard. Okay, we're back and ready to answer one more email. Um, And it's about something that I've gotten a lot of listener emails about this month. Um, now this one is from Anne Marie and it's, it's kind of representative of a lot of these emails. Hi, Jeannie. I'm 35 weeks pregnant with my first baby and my doctor has been all about the induction ever since I got pregnant. I'm healthy, haven't had any complications and neither has my baby, but I also live in an area where there's only one hospital, one obstetrician, a couple of family practice doctors and no midwives. Um, my doctor likes to do inductions. Whenever his patients live more than an hour more than an hour away from the hospital, because he doesn't want any of us to be caught by surprise, I don't want an induction, however, because I don't want to complicate what should be a normal labor, and I don't want to increase my odds for having a C-section. I told him that, but now that this new study came out, he says there's even more evidence that it's actually safer for me to have an induction at 39 weeks. Is he right? What should I do? Anne-Marie. Well, Anne-Marie, that is a predicament. I I am guessing um, that you live more than an hour away from the hospital. Um, it's your first baby. Generally, that's not a big deal. First labors go on for quite a long time. But here's the thing. You asked me, what should you do? I can't really tell you what to do any more than your doctor can. But I can help you think this through just a little bit. Ultimately, a decision like this, whether or not to have an induction, is up to you. You're going to consult with people, your partner, your husband, or your family. You're going to consult with your doctor, and your doctor can put on the pressure, but only you can make the decision to drive to the hospital, sign the consent for treatment, and stick your arm out for the IV medication, or show up for whatever care plan they designed for you. Now, hopefully it won't come down to a battle of wills between you and your doc, but 
what I want to offer you is a little bit more information about that study that recently came out so that you can discuss it with them. I also really, really want you to pick up a copy of my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, wherever you get your books, it's all over the place. And most likely there are a few copies at your library. Um, I want you to go to chapter six about how to deal with late pregnancy curveballs and chapter seven to the section about inductions. That's going to give you a pretty good primer about how to deal with stuff that comes up late in your pregnancy and what induction is really all about. Then let your doctor know what you've decided and ask for his or her support as you make other decisions about your labor. Let him or know that if your health status changes, then you'll be happy to switch gears should it be needed. But for now, now that you and your baby are perfectly healthy, you'll opt for a spontaneous, not induced labor. Now, about that study, that's what we're going to talk to this week's guest about. We're going to get Chris on the line. So Anne-Marie, I hope that helps. Good luck to you. Um, Let us know how things work out. And let's get Chris on the line. Hey, Chris, it's Jeannie. How are you? I'm good, Jeannie. How are you? I am doing pretty good. Um, before we dig into you know what we need to talk about today, um, let's just answer the first question as always. Who are you and what do you do? I am Chris Beard. I am a nurse midwife for Kaiser Permanente in Portland, Oregon. I am a native Oregonian and a mother of two teenagers. And a pretty regular um, guest here on the podcast to answer questions about things that come up as they have, uh, I think it was back in August when there was a new induction study that came up. And I got to tell you, I have gotten so many emails about this, women wanting to know what my opinion is, what I think of it. Um, And I kind of thought it would be just more important for my listeners to hear from you know, another perspective. Yours. I think they should hear from you, Chris. So what do you th- What do you say? I am happy to talk to you about it. Okay. Well, let's, let's set this up a little bit. <clears throat> um, the National Institutes of Health um, did a study that suggests that induced labor at 39 weeks may reduce likelihood of C-section and um, it's linked to lower risk of maternal high blood pressure disorders. So what is this test actually saying? What does it mean? What is it saying? So I think it's important to um, take a slight step back um, to talk a little bit about who participated in this study and who does it apply to. So they uh, recruited first-time moms and offered them induction at 39 weeks of gestation. Uh, Full-term pregnancy is considered to be 40 weeks, and many pregnancies go beyond 40 weeks, as we know. Um, Only 27% of women who were offered to participate in this study were willing to participate, which tells me that most women do not want to be induced. We're talking about a reduction in C-section rate from, I think they they cited 22% to 18%. And those are the things that they looked at, you know, reduction in C-section rate and reduction in hypotensive disorders. They didn't look at length of stay in the hospital, length of labor, patient satisfaction, use of pain medications, or many other factors that I think also go into someone's decision in dis- into whether or not they want to be induced. 
So um, although it was a well-designed study, um, I think there are some takeaways that are important to point out. That is, most women did not want to participate, and there were many things left out of the study. For instance? For instance, length of labor, length of stay in the okay. hospital, patient okay. experience, patient satisfaction, yeah. okay, got it. pain medication. Got it. So how does it differ from what, what was you know considered standard for induction prior to this study? So prior to this study, um, if you were a healthy, normal, first-time mom, you would be offered induction somewhere around 41 weeks, which is one week past your due date. And most people, um, I think I just read recently that um, 50% of people will go into labor before their 41 weeks, and a small percentage will go into labor between 41 and 42. And obviously some people go into labor prior to their due date. Right. Um, so before this study came out, the standard was 41 weeks for most people. I mean, if you had a, if you have a medical condition or if your age is puts you in a high risk category, you might be offered induction at a different time, but 41 weeks was pretty much the standard. But what we're talking about for, for the purposes of this study is just normal, healthy women who you know, don't really have any medical reason per se to be induced, but they're just offered it. It's an elective procedure. It's an elective procedure. And the women who were studied were first time moms. So this doesn't apply to anybody else except for a first time mom. Okay. Um, Okay. So what's your take on it? Well, my take on it is that there are a lot of things to consider uh, when you're looking at an induction of labor. And I think that Um, The things that are missing here are pretty important things. You know, what is the length of stay in the hospital? What is the length of the labor? And what is the patient experience of the labor? I mean, I've been a midwife for 25 years. Mm -hmm. And um, almost every single person, if not every single person that I've taken care of that has had a spontaneous labor versus an induced labor, the spontaneous labor is easier. And induction is difficult. And this, this study says induction at 39 weeks, no matter what the state of the cervix, which means Mm. that for many women, their cervix is not ready for labor. So they go through a number of hours, maybe even days of trying to get their cervix ready so that they can have Pitocin so that they can have a baby. And I think- And they're doing that usually in the hospital. They're usually- When they're not getting any rest, they're getting pestered with. They're getting pestered. They're not eating their own food. They're not sleeping in their own bed. They're being monitored- they're being poked and prodded. And, um, and I think those things really need to be considered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, I know. I can think of so many women who came in for their, you know, 39 week induction and then spent, you know, they come in at night and they get, you know, a cervical ripening agent that is, you know, inserted into the vagina and it's supposed to work overnight and then help the cervix dilate the next day when they use IV Pitocin. But so often what would happen is it wouldn't really do anything. So then you'd do another day of it, or maybe you'd start Pitocin anyways. And then Pitocin is kind of, you know, doing its job to cause contractions on a cervix that just isn't ready to open. Right. And so what you have at the end of, you know, 12 to 24 hours is a frustrated and exhausted patient or you know, mm-hmm. mother to be who is starting to lose faith in the process and lose faith in her body. And, mm-hmm. you know, the benefit, um, you know, the reduction rate that they 
cited going from an eight, uh, 22% risk of C-section to an 18, I think there, there have been other studies that there are other ways to reduce your risk of C-section, such as, um, you know, allowing more time for the different stages of labor. You know, we, at my hospital, we have um, implemented new guidelines for um, how we treat moms in labor in terms of how long we let them go, how long, how long we consider to be normal. And it used to be that we admitted people in, quote, labor when they were three centimeters dilated with regular strong contractions. And as the result of a different right. study, we now try to wait until people are four to six centimeters. We used to think that active labor started at three centimeters and now we know it starts at six centimeters. So, you know, my hospital has done a number of things to try to reduce the primary C-section rate. So there are other ways to reduce the primary C-section rate, which is one of the big, you know, um, takeaways of this study. Another thing that has been shown to reduce your risk of C-section is having a continuous supportive presence like a doula or your spouse with you during your labor. So, um, although I think crows in the background with strong opinions about this study. I'm so sorry. (laughs) The crows in my backyard, they have strong opinions about it too. (laughs) Yes. So, you know, from my takeaway as someone who's cared for women for 25 years, this is, um, you know, although it may be a well-designed study with you know, a small benefit. Um, to me, I think there are many other things to consider. And um, I, I am not a fan, I guess, is, is I can out myself. Yeah. I think most midwives are not fans. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, it seems to me that more intervention is not better. Right. Even if you study it and you can you can massage a study to say that, yeah, yeah, no, more is better. See, the data says so. That's not necessarily the case. My impression of studies is, you know, over the many, many, many years that I've been doing this too, is that, you know, you can, a study will come out that can change standard of care, you know, in a week. All of a sudden, we've seen it happen where we were going along doing one thing and then a study comes out and boom, everything's different. And then a few years later, we find out, oh, no, you know, as you were, that one was wrong. So I'm not, it's not always like that, but you know, I'm not going to be surprised in a year or two or three when they go, oh, well, no, that wasn't the solution. Yeah. We shouldn't have done that. So, you know, I guess my question is, you know, why, why are doctors and women so eager to induce? Why should they just leave it alone whenever possible? Well, I think, I think the natural human condition is to want to control whatever we can. Mm -hmm. And, you know, birth is one of those things that we can't control. Mm -hmm. I mean, people don't know when they're going to go into labor. They don't know how their labor is going to start. I mean, if they're not going to get intervention, they don't Mm -hmm. know how their labor is going to start. They fear their water is going to break in the grocery store, you know, on and on and on. And I think this is, another form of control for patients and for clinicians. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's the natural thing to want to control things, but I don't think that you can control birth in this way. I agree. And, you know, I, I've talked about it before that, you know, becoming a parent is ultimately about losing control. (laughs) 
know, we have it in our mind that we can make it be the way that we expect or anticipate or want it to be, but that's not actually how it work out, you know, and right from the get go, you've got a child involved, you've got a spouse involved, you've got a community, you've got an environment, you've got so many circumstances that are out there that is just part of every child and every, you know, every experience like that. You can't control it. You just can't control it. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I also believe that, you know, birth is best supported um, when we honor the natural, I I don't want to, I don't know how to say this, but when we, when we support the thing, things, the way they were designed to work. Right. Which means that, you know, labor is supposed to be spontaneous. We don't know what starts labor, a communication between baby and mother. It's hard to say, but you know, a secret symbol um, signal where they say, ready, set, go. Yes. And I know from my many, many years and thousands of births that I have attended and witnessed that, um, you know, spontaneous labor is easier. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. It is not easy, but it is easier for people. Yeah. Yeah. I've done both ways. I agree with you. And I think that, you know, when we support the spontaneous process, you know, we have better outcomes. Mm-hmm. when we're not mm-hmm. intervening. Mm-hmm. And intervention is necessary sometimes, but it is not always necessary and it is used um, way more often than it needs to be. Yeah, yeah. And so to I had me, my- this just seems like one more intervention. Yeah. Or one more justification for intervention. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I had my inductions in uh, 95 and 2000. They were pretty popular back then. And they were very successful. Um, you know, every, it all worked out the way that I wanted it to. Um, but they were my third and fourth babies. I'm really, really grateful that it. I didn't do that. I didn't have an induction with my first babies. And my reasons for having inductions you know, with these two were pretty much what you mentioned before. I mean, it was just, it's really unpredictable. And when you have these other kids and other responsibilities, you know, you got to nail down daycare mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can go into labor, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but first time moms, you know, there's a, there's a lot of untested material there. Yeah. 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 Well, Chris, I appreciate your perspective on this a lot. Well, I'm glad it's- you asked me. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of questions about it. A lot of people are wondering, you know, what do we think about this now? Well, I think you're right. It'll be interesting to see what we think about it in two to five years. Right. Right. And it'll be interesting to see if in, uh, if in reality, people like me who are on the front lines of birth actually see the same sorts of numbers, like less than, less than a quarter of people wanting this intervention. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a little bit encouraging too, because, you know, it wasn't so long ago that lots of women were signing up for inductions because they, the, the word hadn't spread Mm -hmm. that it could lead you down a path that you don't really want to go, you know? Well, so the fact that, you know, three quarters of women didn't want to participate. I think that that it's kind of a testament that the word's getting out. Yeah. 
So we'll yeah. we'll watch the we'll watch the publications in two to five years. See what happens. Yeah, we will. Yeah, we will. Well, thanks, Chris. I always like having you on the podcast explaining stuff to folks. We'll get you back on real soon. Okay. Thanks, Jeannie. Okay. Bye. Bye bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Our guest today was midwife, certified nurse midwife, Chris Beard. You can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. You can email me at jeanfaulkner at jeanfaulkner.com. Tweet me at jeanfaulkner and find us over on, on Instagram. Let me know if there's something you want me to cover. And of course, if you're interested in sponsoring Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, we'd love to hear from you. You can find a link for advertising opportunities over on my website, jeanfaulkner.com. Now, go buy the book, will ya? Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. That's it for this week, folks. We'll talk again next week. Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is part of the Parents on Demand Network, where you can find all kinds of parenting podcasts all in one spot. That's P-O-D, Parents on Demand Network. PediaCast is another great pod over on the network. And if you like Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, you're probably going to like this one too. Here's a clip. Hi, this is Dr. Mike from Nationwide Children's Hospital and host of PediaCast, a pediatric podcast for parents. Each week, we cover pediatric news, answer listener questions, and interview pediatric and parenting experts. You can find PediaCast wherever you get your podcasts and on the web at PediaCast.org. We care about the health and well-being of your kids and family, and we'd love to have you join us on PediaCast.